The following message comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. One of the most popular children's TV shows of the last uh, 40 plus years, in fact, it was the longest running children's program, uh, I think 31 seasons, is uh, or was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And um, unless you're below a certain age, there might be memories or, or things that pop into mind when you hear reference to that song. You know, the gentle old man who taught Sunday school for all the years in his church, taught about kindness. I remember all the tours to the factories, like how suitcases are made or how trumpets are made. Um, he would have musical guests on and different things. But one of the things that's most iconic uh, about him and the beginning of the show especially was a song that he would sing, and there were several songs throughout. But one of the opening songs um, invited the audience, as he would look into the screen, um, to join him, to join him on a 30-minute journey through whatever they were doing. And um, if you've seen the show more than once, you probably know what the name of that song is. It is a question. You can just go ahead and shout it out. Won't you be my neighbor? I always thought it was, will you be my neighbor? But if you look it up, it's actually, won't you be my neighbor, okay? But, but what he was doing and singing that little song as he took off his loafers, put on his tennis shoes, right, hung up his jacket, put on his sweater, that whole routine, what he was doing is saying, I want to come into your living rooms, I want to come into your homes, teach you this lesson, and I want you to join me <clears throat> in whatever he was doing, right? He was communicating that he wanted to be the friend of the person who was watching, And it had a magnetic effect on children who would write him letters, who would love to go and meet him. And um, there's fascinating uh, documentaries and other things you can watch about how he was just genuinely a nice person and wanted to to be nice to other people. But if we're honest, um, let's see if we can get this forward there. There we go. If we're honest, um, there's probably people that we could look at in the face And instead of asking, won't you be my neighbor, won't you be my friend, maybe it's physical neighbors in your neighborhood or vicinity, you really want to ask the question, won't you get out of my neighborhood? (laughs) Um, And and you might know these people, right? It's the the guy who's always complaining because your kids are stepping on his lawn. Um, At least where I came from, it was ruining the grass. Um, I I perhaps contextualizing here, it's messing up his plants and the rocks, maybe here in the desert, I don't know. Um, Or maybe it's the neighbor's dog who barks at all hours of the night, right? A mouse walks by and they yap and yap and yap and yap and they keep you up at night. Um, Or uh, maybe it's the person who calls the police on every little noise, every little person that's a possible intruder, and you're like, really? Like, do do you have to do that? So there's certain people that we might say, I'd rather them not be in my neighborhood. And you know, it's not just people who live next door to us or across the street, but there's probably other people in, my, in our lives that we would rather them not be our neighbors. So maybe it's relatives that get under your skin. They seem to always find a way to annoy you, just to kind of needle you at times. Uh, maybe it's a coworker that infuriates you because of their laziness, because of their pettiness about dumb, stupid things that they bring up to the boss that really frustrate you. Maybe it's friends who say or do things that hurt us and make us not want to continue that relationship or open up to them. If you have children, 
There are for sure times that you wish you could loan them to grandma and grandpa for a month or two and say, do you have to be my child right now, right? Um, And if you're married, our spouses can often frustrate us with their little quirks, the little things they do, their little attitudes, just just those little things that build up at times. And we want to look at them and say, do you have to be my neighbor right now? (laughs) Won't you be somebody else's neighbor for just a little bit? And you know, the same is true, not only relationships out there and in our personal lives, but the same can be true in our relationships within our church, even a church like LifePoint, in which, as I've been here 15 months, many people in the community who have visited once or twice or just know the reputation say, man, it's a friendly church, it's a nice church, and I think, I think generally that's true. But even in a church like ours, things can happen that frustrate us. Clicks can form, gossip can flow, people can feel left out, misunderstood, or damaged. And you know, it's not just a unique problem in our day and age. We can talk about all the problems in our culture at large. But this reality has been a reality as long as believers have been following Jesus. It's not a new thing that there's conflict between neighbors, between friends, between coworkers and spouses, and even between people in a gospel-preaching church. And in fact, a good chunk of the content of our New Testament is found in letters addressing churches, and a good chunk of those letters is dealing with problems, is dealing with issues, whether it's in Corinth or whether it's with the Galatians, or as we're going to look at today, even among the church in Rome. And so I'd like to look at a text today in Romans 15, you can turn there um, in your Bibles, that challenges us in how we think about our neighbors, and not just our neighbors next door, not just the people in our home, but specifically using that term neighbor within the context of the local church. The challenge is for us to treat our neighbor in Christ, as we sang, those who are bought by the blood of Christ, our brothers and sisters, to treat them as if Christ were acting towards them, as if Jesus himself were talking and addressing to them, or serving them, or meeting their needs. That's the bar that is set for us in how we interact with our neighbors in Christ, to serve our neighbors as if Jesus were serving them. Before we read our our text, we're going to look at the first seven verses of Romans 15. I want to give a little bit of background. And just so you're clear here, I don't want to steal the thunder. Pastor Kit's going to get to 15 eventually, okay? But it'll be a while, I think, based on all that there is to cover between 1 and 15. Uh, So you'll probably forget a lot of this, okay? Um, But um, it's helpful for us to get the context here because Paul, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, is actually concluding the thought of chapter 14, okay? We're not going to preach all of 14, but I want to give you a little bit of background that will help us to understand what Paul was calling them to do, what it meant that he's calling them to be a neighbor that honors Christ. And so the big picture here is that in Romans 1 to 11, Jesus is describing the righteousness of God. He starts off by talking about their sinful condition, that all of us before Christ are sinners, that we deserve God's condemnation. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the righteousness he offers, we can be forgiven. And then as we move on into Romans, there's questions that come up. What does it mean to have new life in Christ? What does it mean to the reality that we're still sinners 
and yet Christ is doing a work in us. And then later on, he opens it up to, well, what about the, the community of Israel, and what about Gentiles? What does this righteousness look like in this context? So 1 through 11, applying the righteousness of Jesus. But then in chapters 12 through 15, he specifically um, talks about not just the righteousness applied, but what does it mean to have the life of Jesus, the eternal life of Jesus lived out among us? And so chapter 12 deals with um, realities in the church. How do we serve one another? How do, we, how do we interact in such a way that we love and build up the church? And then chapter 13, um, a text that's especially been, um, been helpful and, and relevant this last year, year and a half, is how do we deal uh, with our lives in the world? How do we deal with government? How do we deal with civic interactions in that way? What does the righteousness of Jesus have to do with that? And then the final section, which concludes our text today, is the different groups in the church. So what do we do with disagreements that happen in the church? And so in chapter 14, he really narrows in on two groups of people, and they can be summarized as the weak and as the strong. And so the strong here, it's not physical strength, and it's not even dominant personalities really that he's getting at. The point here is that it is those who are convinced of legitimate liberties they can pursue by faith. Okay, I'll repeat that. So they're convinced of legitimate, meaning not sinful, legitimate liberties, things that they can do because they're in Christ, that they can do to honor God by faith. And we're going to talk about some examples of that. But that is the category that Paul has in mind when he says they're strong, strong in the faith. And then the second category is those who are weak, or those who are weak in the faith. And here, Paul has in mind those who are uncertain about what they can pursue by faith, okay? So the strong are convinced. They have, they have principles from God's Word. They've worked it out. Their conscience is clear that I can do this thing to the glory of God by faith, okay? Those who are weak, they're uncertain about whether they can do this thing to the glory of God. And so Paul says, for this weak person, if you're uncertain, if your conscience isn't clear by faith that you can do this to the glory of God, then you need to decline. You need to refuse to participate in this. But here's the, here's the tension, right? If the strong are convinced, I can do this thing to the glory of God, I can partake in this, and the weak over here, there's areas and categories that they cannot, by faith, with a clear conscience, do this and act in this way. Well, what's going to happen when this group and this group get together? There's going to be conflict, right? There's going to be questions and realities that need to be worked out if these two groups are going to work together in unity. Now, what would be a simple solution with these two groups? What do you think? Just keep them separate, right? So strong, you kind of do your thing over here. You have your little huddle. You guys are all convinced, yeah, this is biblical. We can do this. We can enjoy the liberty of having Christ. Weak, you guys stay over in your little corner because you don't know, you're not sure, you're not certain. And so all of a sudden you have West Side Baptist Church and East Side Baptist Church over here, right? <laughs> and that seems like a simple solution, right? And in fact, you probably know, I'm, I'm making light of it, but you probably know of churches that actually were together at one point, and now you have First Baptist Church and Second Baptist Church and Third Baptist Church and Fourth and Fifth and Sixth Baptist Church, okay? 
Now, sometimes there are legitimate reasons for starting and, and, and doing that, and we can talk about that. But often, often, some of those disagreements and differences is a matter of not being able to reconcile these things. And so rather than Paul saying, you stay over here, you stay over here, he says, we need to work this out. And that's really what chapter 14 is all about. So what did it look like in their context? I'm sorry, we'll, we'll get there in just a second. There are two dangers that these groups face. The strong, the danger here is for them to mock or belittle those who are weak in faith, right? They're convinced, I can eat this meat, I can drink this wine, I can just live this day as a normal day, I don't have to observe this festival or feast, and therefore, I'm good, me and Christ are good. And he can look down and mock and belittle those with a weaker conscience. Those who are weak are not certain if they can participate in this thing to the glory of God. They can look at the strong, those who are convinced, and say, how dare they? How dare they say they're a Christian and they can participate in these things? And so there's dangers on both sides. There are three specific issues that Paul was dealing with with the Roman church. The first is regarding meat and food. The strong thought they could eat meat to the glory of God, right? It's covered by the blood of Christ. We're not under the law anymore. I can eat any meat to the glory of God. The weak, in this case, thought they could only eat vegetables, some of them, out of concern about the meat. So can I eat pork, the Jews thought, or is this offered to an idol? I don't know. I'm uncertain, so I'm just not going to even go there. I'm going to avoid those things. The second issue that he deals with is holy days or feasts, probably Jewish feasts. So the strong, they said every day is to the glory of God. And so I don't need to observe these holidays or festivals or keep these institutions that, that were there under the Mosaic Law. I, I don't need to, we don't need to do that. We can worship God any day, anywhere. The weak, however, they valued these things, and they thought, under God, by faith, I need to keep and observe some of these things. And they thought that was how they could please God. The final area that's addressed is wine. And so the strong, they thought, it's okay for me to partake in wine to the glory of God. Not getting drunk, but participating in that by faith to the glory of God. And the weak, for other reasons, thought, I need to abstain from that. I need to stay away from this for the glory of God, and therefore um, I can't partake in that. So especially in the food and drink, whenever they are together and they're celebrating, they're having a meal, they're doing things, these issues are going to come up. They can't avoid them if you're going to live together. And so Paul acknowledges the dangers that are there. And instead of keeping them separate, don't ever eat together, don't ever do anything on a holiday together, don't, don't, uh, don't mix at all. He says, we need to work this out. Don't judge them. Instead, accept them because of who you are in Christ. So, how are we to take this context in which Paul writes this and think about how we live towards our neighbor, towards those that we have differences with? So, this chart's been helpful for me. So, this is their context, okay? The three things he addresses, meat, wine, holy days. But what we need to do, our job is to come up here and say, what are the timeless principles that Paul gives to their situation that we can apply to us today. I haven't had any disputes about Jewish religious holidays, 
so far in my life, okay? And you probably haven't either. And there might be certain issues that Paul's addressing here that don't directly apply to us. But the question is, do we ever have disagreements? (laughs) Are there any issues that we could maybe have a fight over? And you say, are you kidding me? Where do we start? Where do we stop, right? So I'm going to give just a laundry list, no particular order, okay? And and, at danger of you guys going off onto rabbit trails here, but I want you to just, I'm just going to list a number of issues that we could possibly have disagreements with, just so that you see ourselves in the situation the Romans are in, okay? How about these? How do we treat Sundays? Some say just do whatever. It's another day. We can live to the glory of God. Some people, we need to treat it like the Sabbath, certain observances. What about listening to secular music? What kind? How much? What's the dangers there? How about how we wear our clothes? What is modest? Any discussions with teenagers about that? (laughs) Um, What about finances, right? Things that seem more capitalistic, things that seem more socialistic pull up by the own bootstraps, or offering a generous safety net, fair trade coffee and other products that people get passionate about, climate change, what movies or TV shows we can legitimately watch. Ooh, man, this is a good one. Following strict baby advice, how you raise your baby. Schedules, breastfeeding or not, vaccines, etc. Any mommy wars that happen over those issues, even within the church. How are we going to educate our children? Public school versus private school versus private Christian school versus homeschool. Homeopathic medicine versus antibiotics. Tattoos and body piercings. How many? How big? Where? On whom? Um, Partaking in alcohol in moderation. Going into debt for any reason. Dating versus courtship. How many children married couples should have? Don't ask grandma and grandpa or my mom and dad, because they'll say the more the better. Practicing daily family devotions, being overweight, talking to your children about Santa Claus. I just had to end that one on a lighter note. I had to word that very carefully. Um, this was a list, and there's others from a book called Conscience by um, uh, Andy Nacelli, J.D. Crowley, very helpful book about how we can train our conscience. But the point is, we could sit here all afternoon and come up with a list of things that we can legitimately discuss and debate and argue about. Scripture is clear that many things are sinful. Lying, adultery, gossip, gluttony, immorality, etc. But there are many disputable areas where, just like the Roman church, we have to work together. So what does Paul have to say here in Romans 15 about how we should treat our neighbor? to live for the good of our neighbor. All right, let's read the full text here. Romans 15, 1 through 7. It says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the taunts of those who taunt you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one purpose and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ 
also accepted us for the glory of God. So there's a few questions that we need to ask as we think about what it means to live for the good of our neighbor. The first question I have up here is, who are the strong? And so as I mentioned before, we covered a little bit, those who are convinced um, that they can do certain things to the glory of God with a clear conscience. And so Paul here, as he summarizes the, the context of chapter 14, he lands and specifically puts a weight of responsibility on the strong. On this group over here who says, I can legitimately partake in these things. As a family, we can do these things before God to the glory of God. And Paul addresses this group of people and says, you who are strong, bear with those who are weak. We're going to talk about the weak in a second, but I think it's important to realize that Paul puts a lot of the burden on those who are strong, those who are convinced that they can do things, that they have this liberty in Christ. And Paul says, of those who are strong, to bear with those who are weaker. Well, who are the weak? As we said before, those who are without biblically informed convictions. Maybe they're working through or wrestling through these things and they're not sure where they stand. Maybe it's somebody who's a baby Christian and they're just trying to figure out how to find the book of Romans in their Bible, let alone what it says and what it means. And so for those who are weaker, those who are not as solid in their conviction based on Scripture, Paul says those who are strong look to the needs, look to the concerns of those who are weak. And so that is where he lays it out in this way. Now, I want to clarify here. Uh, Notice what he says, the second word, at least here in the NASB is, what does he say? Now, who are strong? Now, we who are strong, right? So it seems like Paul here is putting himself in the category of the strong, those who are convinced. And we know this elsewhere where Paul says, I can partake in all these things to the glory of God, but I choose to limit myself. So Paul puts himself in this camp, and I think it's helpful to see that how many people want to be weak, right? Is it a good thing to be weak and to remain weak? Not a trick question. No, right? So if you say, you know, I just aspire to be really weak in health, weak in strength, I just want to be a weak person, right? No, it's good to be strong. It's good to desire to be strong. And so as believers, as Christians, we shouldn't desire to remain weak. We shouldn't desire to remain uninformed about how we should live our lives. We should want to grow in our convictions to be in the category of the strong. But the reality is, it's a spectrum, right? It's a continuum. There are always going to be people who, we could say in one sense, are more strong than us in that how they live their lives, their maturity, their wisdom, their growth, and people who we would say are less informed, who are growing and maturing. And so the, the moment that we, fe- we see ourselves here as we are surely the strongest person in the world is the moment we need to step back and get some realization. We always need to grow, right? We always need to mature in our faith. But here Paul is putting on a lot of the emphasis on the strong. The second question is, who is my neighbor? Okay, this isn't Mr. Rogers, okay? Who is our neighbor? Well, Jesus often uses the term neighbor to refer to anyone that God providentially puts in your path. Do you remember the story that Jesus told when he was asked this question? Who is my neighbor? What's the story that was told? One of the most famous parables. The Samaritan, right. 
who of all the people in the world in Israel should not have looked at the Jew who was wounded on the road as his neighbor, right? The priest should have done that. The Levites, the the put-together important person, and yet the Samaritan looked on the needs of others. But I think in this context, Paul is narrowly using this to refer to those in the church because of the address of the letter to the Romans and the way he lays it out here. And so I think Paul here is saying, those who are in your believing faith community, those in our church, are your neighbor. Now, this should apply beyond that, but specifically, it should refer to those here within our body that we have a relationship with. And so, as we think about these categories and how we ought to be a neighbor towards one another, that's who Paul has in mind here. Now, another question, what does it mean to please them? And this is a fascinating choice of words, because Paul could have said, as you think about your neighbor, those who are weak, those who are strong, loving them, showing compassion and help to them, you should serve them, you should be kind to them, you should love them. But he uses a term here that means what it looks like it means in English, which is to please them. And we need to, first of all, talk about what it doesn't mean. Because it doesn't mean that we make them the goal or idol of our lives. Because sometimes that's what we can mean when we say please them, right? Just make them happy. Just, just help them to, to not be a pain to you, right? So this would be do the token thing to the next door neighbor so they stop griping about what you're doing or what's happening, right? And that's not what Paul has in mind here. It's not just about making someone happy or being controlled by what they think of us. Paul is not calling on them to be people pleasers just to please other people. And so Paul was clear about his own ministry in Galatians 1. He says, For am I now seeking the favor of people or of God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Here in this context, those in the Galatian church, a group of them, were wanting Paul to soften his message. They were wanting him to accommodate to the idea that it is actually a matter of works that we maintain our standing before God. And Paul said, may it never be. I am not going to please these people by changing the gospel message. So Paul is clear here that um, it's not about just doing whatever makes people happy. And you know, sometimes based on our different personalities, that's how we can just deal with conflict, isn't it? You know what? Whatever you think, man whatever makes you happy, right? Whatever I can do just to to get you off my back. But that's not the context, or that's not what Paul's talking about here when he's talking about pleasing them. Instead, I think a more accurate text to refer to would be 1 Corinthians 9, seeing that pleasing our neighbor or fellow Christians means that we set aside our preferences and our liberties for their good. We, we set aside the things that we can legitimately do and say we can do by faith before God to serve the other. So what does Paul say about his mindset toward the Corinthians? He said, For though I am free of all people, I have made myself a slave to all to gain them more. To the Jews, I became Jew, uh, as a Jew so I could gain them. Those that are under the law, I put myself under the law so that I may gain them. He says, um, uh, so that I might gain those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might gain the weak. Okay? Remember, Paul just said, I consider myself in this strong category. 
So he's not saying, I all of a sudden get rid of all my convictions, and I just don't know what I believe anymore, and I become weak. What does he say? He says, I become as if I am weak. In other words, he says, I will choose to limit myself and what I feel like I can legitimately do to serve the needs of others. That's what he means when he says to please people. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So pleasing our neighbors, pleasing those that God has put in our church community here means that we set aside the legitimate things that we can do, our preferences, our opinions, the things that are natural to us and that we like, we set some of those aside to serve the good of the other. And one last phrase that I want to look at here before we move on is in the first beginning of verse 1, he says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And I think there's a couple uses or aspects of the term ought here. One is a command. Paul is saying it's not optional. It's not just a select few. Those of you who are strong, those of you who are firm in your convictions, you need to do this. It's an imperative. But I think there's another sense in which it implies something that is done by design. This is what God intends. This is what God wants in the church, that you set aside these things for the good of somebody else. Um, this past weekend, one of my daughters uh, was wanting to, to work on a project with me. And she was like, Daddy, I want some tools. I want to do some, you know, some things with you, a screwdriver, hammer, or whatever. So I rummaged through the garage, my, my bag, and with all my tools and stuff, I found a couple screwdrivers, a little mini, mini drill that, that, that spins around and works, a hammer, a few of those extra things. And as we were going, and uh, it was funny this morning, I saw her taking apart one of the light covers <laughs> with all the screws, because she could, just because she could with the screwdriver. Uh, but we pointed out the fact that you have two main types of screwdrivers, and it's really important to know the difference, right? You got a flathead, and you got a Phillips, or a star-shaped, right? And it's important that if you're going to go and screw something, you know which one of them to use to to, uh, to use on that particular screw, right? If you have a Phillips head screw in front of you, you ought to use a Phillips head screwdriver. Now, if you do any projects around the house, you know at times you don't have one, and so you just have to make do, right? You find a really tiny flathead, and you jam it in there, and you make it work, right? But that's not how it's designed to work, right? You ought to use the right tool for the job that you have. And Paul is saying here that within a believing community of faith, in which there are differences. There's different opinions. There are different preferences. There's different ways we're raised. There are different personalities. There's all of this diversity within a believing community of faith. And here's what Paul says. You ought to. It is God's design for you to. You need to bear with the needs and burdens of others. It's not only a command. It's how God designed the church to function. Because if it was a matter of making it easy... If God wanted us to all just be happy and sit around a campfire and sing kumbaya and all just be like each other, he wouldn't have put us all together as a church. He wouldn't have designed the church to be people from different backgrounds, with different personalities, with different jobs, with different socioeconomic backgrounds, to be together, to worship together as a community. But Paul says this is how it ought to be. This is God's design. This is what he wants And because we have been forgiven an infinite sin debt, how can we refuse to serve others? How can we refuse to give up things that we like for the good of somebody else? 
So we ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength. This idea of bear with, Paul used in Galatians 6, to describe how believers carry each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. And so here, it's not just a matter of put up with and just deal with. It's the idea of intentionally going and finding somebody who's struggling and helping them lift their burden. Um, I did a lot of backpacking in high school and junior high. We would go on the Appalachian Trail for about five or six days and cover a lot of miles, everything we need on our backpacks. And inevitably, through that, through that week, through all the hiking that would happen, somebody would either get sick or injured. We had some twisted knees and some, some, uh, some messed up ankles and people getting sick and throwing up and all, you know, all that. But we have to keep going, right? We have a mission. We have to get there because the van is at the end of the trail. And so the obligation on all the rest of us who are feeling well, who are feeling healthy, is to do what? Kick them and say, come on, <laughs> deal with it, right? Suck it up. Just be a man, right? Maybe it was a little bit of that. But mostly it was, here, I'm going to take this pot and I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to take this shovel. And for whatever reason, the heaviest thing we carried was a shovel called the E-Tool. And uh, I'll let you imagine what it was for. But take this shovel that weighed like five pounds or whatever it was. You give it to somebody else over here. And let me lighten your load. Let me make it easier for you so that as you're limping along, it's not so hard. And that's what Paul says here. We ought to bear the burdens of those who are weak. Not to kick them while they're down. Not to say, you silly Christian, why don't you just get your act together and figure out that you can do these things, but actually bear with them in their weakness. And so Paul would say to a Roman Gentile believer who's going to have a Roman Jewish believer family over for lunch, you know, you probably shouldn't put pork out for them if this is going to be an offense, right? Now, can that Roman Gentile who was raised loving ham, enjoying pork to the glory of God now that he's a believer, can he legitimately do that within his family, within his confines? To the glory of God, he can, right? But the moment that he bumps up against somebody who has a different conviction and who has struggle in his heart about whether or not he or she or their family can do this, how dare he act like that's not a big deal? How dare he offend the weakness of his brother and sister? And I think we see that, right? And, and we often acknowledge that and say yes. But I would also like to point out, I think that Paul makes it clear on the flip side, that if the Jewish believer is having his own lunch here, okay, he's having garlic and lentils and I don't know, whatever, he's, whatever they're having for lunch that doesn't include ham, and he's here in his house, and he knows that his Roman Gentile brother and his family are going to have this wonderful ham lunch. You know what the, the obligation ought to be for this brother over here? Don't judge this guy over here who can legitimately, by faith, to the glory of God, enjoy this ham meal with his family uh, to the glory of God. Do not look down upon or judge this person over here who has a clear conscience before God that he or she can do this thing. And so there's obligations on both. If we're going to bear with the weakness and the burden that is there, that we ought to not judge one another. And so Paul says we ought to live for the good of our neighbor, for, for their benefit. But what is the ultimate goal? And I think this is an important question to ask, because you know what? Um, sometimes we can get distracted. Sometimes we can think, 
You know, the, the best thing here as a church body and as a family is just, just no conflict, right? Just, just make things easy. Just have the path of least resistance, right? And so is the goal here, is Paul's aim that the Roman church be known as the friendliest church in Rome? Now, that's not a bad thing if it was known as that. It maybe was the only church in Rome at that point. Um, or was his goal that this church be known as having the best programs, the best interests, the best things to draw people so people come and say, that's a great church. We love, we enjoy, we have fun there, etc." Is the goal for everyone to be happy or to boost your neighbor's self-esteem so that they feel good about themselves? I don't think so. I think he's after something bigger. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. What is Paul's goal for them? Notice what he says. With one purpose and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ has accepted us for the glory of God. And so two times Paul says here, the reason we put up with one another, the reason we look out for the weakness, for the burden that I can lift up and I can help, the reason I don't just blow past someone who has legitimate concerns, the reason why I take time and intentionality and effort to try to understand that person and understand what their convictions are and why they would do this or not do that, instead of just immediately judging them based on what they say or shock what they post on Facebook, right? That their family does, or that they did, or whatever. Instead of doing that, taking the time and intentionality, and the reason we do that is because the church is not just about us. It's not just about where can I come to be comfortable? Where can I come to gather around people that are just like me, that make me feel good, that I can talk about my hobbies, I can talk about my interests, right? They can help me do the things that I already want to do, right? I want to be a good parent. Help me be a good parent. I want to be a good citizen. Help me be a good citizen. I want to be wise with my money. Help me be wise with my money. And so much of a lot of things that happen in churches today are help me to be what I think I need to be. And instead, Paul says here, God has gathered all these different people with different backgrounds, with different convictions, different burdens that are by God's grace growing together, not for your own end, not for your own purposes, but for the glory of God, for the magnification of God. This idea of glorifying God, um, I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, it can be sort of fuzzy. Like, like, what does that actually mean, right? We hear it, we say it, glorify God, magnify God, but what, is that, what does that look like? Um, one of my uh, favorite authors and preachers, John Piper, he has a, an image that has been really helpful to me. He says, you know, there's two types of magnifying lenses. One is a type that can take something incredibly small and blow it up so our eye can see it, right? So that's the Petri dish, that's the slide there. You can see the amoeba or the protozoa or whatever it is that the chemist needs to look at. Take something really, really small and it brings it up so our eyes can see the differences, right? The snowflake, for example, okay? But there's another type of lens that magnifies and that is the telescope, right? So you go to uh, Griffith Observatory or Willis, I think it is the other one right down the hill there, and you don't go there to look at small things, right? You don't go there with a slide of an amoeba and hold it to the guy in this massive, you know, 15-foot lens and say, um, I would like to look at an amoeba, sir, and he's going to look like, what are you talking about? We look at big things, right? We look at the rings of Saturn, 
right? We look at the dimples of the man on the moon with this big lens, right? And so when Paul says we live as a church to the glory of God, he's not saying we need to bring God up to scale, right? That we need to do something that way. Instead, he's saying we need to magnify God. We need to bring God in his greatness, in his glory, in his majesty, in his holiness, in his perfection. We need to bring him to bear on people, right? We need to get them to see with biblical eyes who God really is. And you know what's amazing in God's providence? Because we, we look at that and we say, yes, amen. You know, we preach, pr- preach sermons about that. Or we do that through our singing. Or we do that through our Sunday school lessons. Or we do that through all these powerful ways. But you know Paul, what Paul would also say? He would say that we do this out on the lawn there when we have a really hard conversation. And he says that we do this when we resolve a marital spat to the glory of God. Or, he says, we can magnify God and bring him to bear, not on our lives only, but on the lives of others, when we confess to our children that we were wrong and that we need to ask their forgiveness. Or, when we deal with a conflict in a family relationship that's been boiling over for weeks or months, we humble ourselves and say, I know you were probably, we're thinking in our head, this person was 90% to blame, but I didn't respond the right way. And so when we come humbly to them and try to resolve those differences, you know what Paul says? Paul says, by doing this, by working this out, who are we making big in that story, in that picture? Are we making ourselves look big? Are we saying, look at me, you know, uh, bend to me and what I want and, and my favor and the things that make me feel good? No, what we're doing is we're stepping aside and we're saying, come here, I want you to look at this. I want you to put your eyes in this lens right here and look at my great God. He is so good. He is so big. He is so amazing that I can humble myself and I can come and help you and serve you in this way. So how amazing would it be if as a church, we were known as a church that pulls people to the lens to see God's glory through how we interact with each other, through how we set aside what we like, what feels good to us, what we prefer, what makes us feel good and what makes it easy for us because we want to love other people. That's what Paul says the church is for. That is what we are after. That with one purpose and one voice, you would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Now, Paul's not saying here that we all become clones, right? That I I magnify myself and so I put myself all up in here and we all just become like one person, meaning we lose our personality, we lose our differences, we lose our distinctions. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is the thing that draws us together, the strongest magnet in the room is not my personality or your personality or our, um, our political views or our cultural agreements. The biggest thing that draws us together as a church is who God is and the glory of God. That's what it means to live with one purpose and one voice. All right. So that's our goal, that we ought to live for the glory of God. But you might still be wondering or thinking through, well, what does this mean? How do we actually do this? This sounds great. We want to point people to God. We want to point people to the glory of God. But how do we do this? And we're going to cover this last section very quickly, verses 3 and 5, and how we do this. And I want to give you five actions, five steps, if you want to look at it that way, to help us serve our neighbor. That we ought to look, fill, Inspire, anchor, and ask. Okay, the first one, look at verse 3. 
Paul starts off by explaining to them how they can serve their neighbor in this way, and he says that you look to Jesus. Even Christ, the Messiah, did not please himself, but as it is written, the taunts of those who taunt you have fallen on me. And so if we want to know how we can get along with one another, how can we put up with that person who just annoys us? Or maybe that person who betrayed us, who said that spiteful thing behind our backs. How could we ever forgive somebody in that way? And Paul says, look to Jesus, who bore the taunts, who bore the ridicule, who bore the shame because he wanted to please his Father out of his love for us. And Paul goes from the greater to the lesser, right? If Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the creator of the universe, if he could bear with and put up with the shame and the taunts, the betrayal by his own disciples who he invested in for three years, if Jesus could bear with our sin on the cross, surely, by God's grace, we can bear with one another. Surely we can love each other as God wants us to love. And so when we look to Christ, it helps us to love one another. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 3, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed in the same image from one degree unto another. And so if you want to learn how to deny yourself, how to love others, to be others-centered, not self-centered, fill your mind with the example of Jesus. Sing the songs that bring that to mind. Read the passages of Scripture. Meditate on who Jesus is and and take that um, into your minds. So what if your neighbor, physical here at church, what if your neighbor had a neighbor who followed the example of Jesus? How would their lives be different? The second is to fill your mind with truth. Paul says in verse 4 that whatever is written in Scripture in earlier times was written for our instruction. Paul briefly takes a little rabbit trail in verse 4. He had quoted from Psalm 69 earlier about Jesus, and now he says the things in Scripture are written for you. Yes, there is an original audience in the Old Testament, and there's an original audience in the New Testament that we're reading about today, but Paul says Scripture and what was given in there was given for you, for your instruction. And so if we want to know how we live with each other, if we know, want to know how we bear with one another, we look to God's Word. And we don't just look to it like uh, we, we search Wikipedia, right? So, Mr. Rogers, I wanted to look, is it will you be my neighbor, won't you be my neighbor? So I type in Mr. Rogers, it's theme song, whatever. I pop up and it shows me, right? And sometimes we look at God's Word that way. I, I got a problem, I need an answer. Uh, type it in quick, give it, give it to me what I need. And, and there's value in that, but there's also value in letting the filter of God's Word sift through your life. So as you come to a passage and you read it, it changes your mindset. So fill your mind with God's truth. It will help you to live for the good of others. So what if your spouse had a spouse who daily filled her mind with God's Word? What would that look like? How would that change your relationships? Fill your mind with the truth. The third is, inspire your heart from Scripture. He talks about Scripture in verse 4. It's written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. So how can God's Word help us to deny ourselves and serve others to the glory of God? Well, Paul says that when we take God's Word, we intake it, we allow the Spirit to change us from the inside out. You know what it gives us? It gives us perseverance, and it gives us encouragement. 
it helps us to realize this is hard. Setting aside what I want to do is not fun. It's not easy. Sometimes it's really hard to know what to say next, what next move to, to, to move in that relationship. But God says here in his word, through scripture, it'll help us through encouragement and through perseverance. Uh, Hebrews 11 is a great example of this. If we want to see how people by faith could persevere and endure, read Hebrews 11. We won't read all of these for the sake of time, but we can read of Noah, who was tormented and mocked. But by faith, by faith, he obeyed God anyway. Or how about Abraham? Abraham, who was settled in his, in his former land, he had possessions, right? He had all the things that he needed, but God told him, I want you to go to a strange land, to a, a people in a place that you've never seen before, give up everything you know, everything that's comfortable, and I want you to do it to go and be a new nation. And what did Abraham do? He said, I'm going to go by faith. We can seek encouragement and perseverance from the example of Abraham that he did it by faith, and by God's grace, we can by faith as well. Or how about Sarah? Have you ever suffered from infertility or maybe an enduring physical disease or illness that day after day after day makes you want to throw in the towel and say, is it even worth it? What, how, how, do I, how do I do this? How do I live in this way? Maybe it's not you, but maybe it's a loved one you care for, or it's somebody in our body who is suffering in that way. But you, like Sarah, can consider God faithful who has promised to be with you, to never forsake you, to not give you more than you can handle. And so we can soak ourselves in encouragement and perseverance by giving ourselves to God's word. Hebrews says, all of these died in faith without receiving their promises, But, verse 16, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And so as you read Scripture with that idea in mind, with that lens, we can receive encouragement. How could David do what he did? Not because he was great, not because he was a superhero, but he had faith in a great God. How could Paul endure all of the suffering, all of the things, betrayal by people that were with him, not because he was great or superhuman, but because he had faith in God. And so you as well can have faith in God. So what if your coworkers had a coworker who drew encouragement every day from gospel truth found in Scripture? How could you deal with their problems differently? How could you point them to the greatness and goodness of God? Number four, anchor your hope in God. The text says in verse 4 as well, through perseverance and encouragement of Scripture, we might have, what's that word? Powerful four-letter word, hope, right? Have you ever been without hope? Have you ever felt like, I don't know what to do? I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do today and tomorrow about the situation. And you feel paralyzed because you don't have hope. The lack of hope can be powerful, On the flip side, having hope and certainty and confidence can fuel us and drive us. And so Paul is saying here, if we're going to serve our neighbor, not because she deserves it, not because it's fun, not because you're like, oh man, I love confrontation. I just can't wait to deal with this problem and and this troublesome person, right? Maybe some of you are like that. And we can talk later maybe about some of the other problems. But if, if you're wondering, how can I do that? How can I endure that? How can I live and bear with this person without being discouraging, without bickering, without complaining, 
We need to find hope. We need to have hope in something that is certain, that is sure. Because guess what? If you put your hope in your problem-solving skills, or you know what? I got all the tips. I've watched Dr. Phil. I've watched Oprah. I know how to work with people. I know how to make these things happen. And if you put your hope that you can fix this person and you can make the trouble go away or you can somehow make it easier, can I tell you something? You're going to be really disappointed. Probably right away, but especially down the road, right? Because if you put your hope in yourself or in that person changing, then you're going to be disappointed. But instead, we put our hope in God. We put our hope in the future that God promises for us. How did Jesus endure the cross? How did he endure all of the things that were spoken and done and treated how he was treated? Well, one of the ways that Hebrews tells us is that Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who established that we follow by faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You see, it wasn't for fun that Jesus went and endured shame in the cross. It wasn't some, some sadistic desire for pain or for emotional turmoil. No, it was something that he saw beyond the cross. He saw the joy that would be there by pleasing the Father, by showing love towards us. And so we ought to have hope as well, hope in what God has promised. Then the last one, briefly, is that we need to ask God for power. These are not easy things that I'm talking about. I don't want to treat any of this glibly, like, you know, just follow a couple of these quick things, and all of a sudden you get along with everybody, and all those relationships that have had years and years of pain and sorrow are just going to be fixed right away. I can't promise that, and I I can't forecast your future that all those things are going to work out the way that you want them. And so we might just come to it and just be like, "I I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I have enough wisdom or strength or the, the, the thing to sustain and have the stamina here. And you know what Paul would say? He'd say, you're right. You don't have it within you. You don't have what it takes to get along with that person, to reconcile, to, 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 to solve or fix this situation. And you know what? Admitting that you don't have it is actually a good thing. Because what he does in verses 5 and 6 is he demonstrates their need for the power of God. Of all of the people, the super apostle Paul writes to them, he tells them what to do, he writes this long letter of all this doctrine, and he applies it, but he realizes and acknowledges it's not just about giving the right advice or having the right truth. He realizes that God and his power need to work this in their lives, and it's the same for us. So we ought to humbly come before God and say, God, I can't do this. I can't fix this relationship. I don't have it within me to endure and bear with this weak person. I can't fix or solve this relationship. We come humbly to God in prayer. And so if we're going to look to Jesus as our source and example, we need God's power to open our eyes and help us to see that. If we're going to fill our minds with the truth of Scripture, we need God's power to help us to desire God's Word. If we're going to endure and be encouraged by God's Word, we need God to do that work in us to help us to look to His Word. If we're going to anchor our lives in hope that something will sustain us and give us love for others, we need God's help to anchor ourselves in hope. And finally, as a gospel community here at LifePoint, if we want to point others around us to the glory of God through all of our differences, through all of our opinions and our our personalities and our backgrounds, if if we want to do that in a way that honors and glorifies God, we need God's power. 
We can't do it on our own. We need to humbly come before God and ask for his help. So what if our church was known and marked as a church that daily asked God to produce love and unity and service within us? How would that change us? How would we be different as a body of Christ? So what if your neighbor had a neighbor? Or if your spouse had a spouse? If your child had a parent, your friend had a friend? What if our church had church members that were so controlled by God's love working in us that we live for the good of others and not ourselves? That we were so filled with God's truth that it controlled us every day that we were transforming the relationships around us. Let's live to the glory of God. Let's pursue this end, not because we can do it in ourselves, but because God is faithful. So will you serve your neighbor? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and the power that it has. Um, how it, uh, Scripture says, it, it separates the joints and the marrows. It strikes us right at the core. It, it addresses us right where we live. It shows up on our doorstep and rings the doorbell of home. And I know for myself, this text um, has just torn through me and my selfishness and how I want to fix things and how I want to make things easier in my relationships and even here in the church. And I ask God that you would humbly help us to see our need to, to change, to grow how we view each other, how we love and desire one another, and that we would do it not to please others in the sense of making them happy or fixing them, but ultimately for the glory of God, to point others to you. I thank you for this church body. I thank you for the diversity that is here and the gifts and the personalities and and all that you've given us. Help us to steward those things to the glory of God as we serve each other. In Jesus' name, amen.